0: From the front lines to the home front, America's military veterans and first responders are committed to serving our nation and our community and protecting our way of life. The Epic Times Battlefield Project, in partnership with the Havoc Journal, gives voice to America's service community and highlights their successes and their struggles, their triumphs and their tragedies. In their own words and from their own hearts, these are their battlefields. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Battlefields Podcast. I am your host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charlie Fate, once again bringing you stories from the front lines and the home front. As usual, if you like what we're doing here on Battlefields, please download and share this episode and leave us a five star review. And if you are interested in being a future guest, our contact information is in the show notes. Today's guest is Tim Hendricks. Tim is a former United States Army captain who served as a tank platoon leader and then as a military intelligence officer in which capacity he was an advisor to the Iraqi Ministry of Interior's National Information and Intelligence Agency. When not working or writing in his home in upstate New York, Tim is most likely reading, woodworking, or watching his beloved San Francisco 49ers. Tim, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I really appreciate
0: it. Yeah, Tim, I'm very interested to talk about your book, The Instructor, especially its protagonist. I know we'll get there down the road, but I think we'd start By just going into your background, why you chose to join the Army, your route to becoming an officer, and what you did in in the Army.
1: Sure. Uh, So I um, come from a long line of uh, military service. Uh, Both grandfathers served in World War II. Uh, my grandmother, uh, prior to my commissioning, my grandmother was actually the highest ranking uh, individual in the whole family. She was a second lieutenant in the Army Nursing Corps. Uh, she was stationed stateside. So she would um, I think I believe she worked in a hospital, uh, like a rehabilitation hospital for troops that were wounded overseas in Europe and the Pacific. Um, my uncle was a door gunner in Vietnam, um, on the, on the Hueys and my father also served during Vietnam. He was a, uh, he is the only Marine in the entire family out of, uh, army. And, uh, he was stationed in Okinawa, uh, as a, um, motor transport mechanic, uh, during Vietnam. So, um, from a very, very, early age, I felt the call to uh, serve in the military. Uh, it was just it spoke to me. It was something I was drawn to. Uh, yeah, I used to, uh, when other kids were playing basketball and football, I was low crawling in my backyard under bushes and stuff like that. Um, it was just something I always wanted to do and something that my parents, uh, especially my father, uh, fostered in me as a credible. Path uh, in my life. Um, the one thing that I will credit them for uh, is, especially my father, was guiding me towards the officer track. Uh, having been a uh, lower enlisted marine and having had some real um, lack of a better term, crappy details that he was put on. Um, you know, he he basically said, "You have the." intelligence and the um, discipline and and the makings of a good officer you know the responsibility of a good officer from from my experience being in uh, and I want you to go that route if you're really serious about the military uh, I won't stand in your way but uh I want you to be going you know striving for the the officer track so as I kind of grew, um, and got closer to that age where, you know, colleges are becoming a reality. Um, my, my dream had always been West Point. I was, um, working towards that every grade that I got, every extracurricular that I got was working towards an appointment to West Point, but kind of around my sophomore year, when I really started doing research into, both college and the military uh, as options, it came to light that ROTC might be a better fit for me um, where I wanted to be. West Point had certainly its pros and cons. Um, but ROTC just seemed like a, a better fit. So um, rather than applying to West Point, I applied to colleges uh, looking for my uh, for an ROTC scholarship. Uh, And was fortunate enough to be awarded uh, a scholarship to Hofstra University on Long Island. Um, And they awarded me a, it was a very small program at the time. I'm I'm proud to say that the school has grown by leaps and bounds with its program and has a bunch of satellite schools around it now. Uh, But when I was there, uh, there was only like a handful of cadets in, in each uh, grade even my freshman year, we started off with I think fifty four cadets coming into the fall semester, and by the spring semester of my freshman year, there was like six of us left. You know, so it was a very very small program. Um, a, another cadet got the full four year scholarship. I was awarded a three year scholarship. But that cadet, actually having a, a, a four year scholarship, she she dropped the program going into the spring semester. She was one of one of those fifty four that didn't move on, uh, and so they uh, the program actually awarded me the second half of her four year. So I ended up having a three and a half year scholarship. Uh, Hofstra is very good in that they also credit ROTC scholarship cadets with a um, a dorm. So I was able to dorm, even though I lived like 15 minutes down the road, I was able to dorm there all four years. So it made out for a good uh, college experience that I really enjoyed Um, and, you know, allowed me to explore the other um, opportunities that college provides, you know, (laughs) as it were, you know. (laughs) But um, I was then uh, commissioned in 2003. Uh, I volunteered for uh, the branch detail program. Because uh, I couldn't make up my mind, I had this great mentor uh, captain who had who had just come out of his command time, and he was an armor captain. He was, a, he was a tank guy, and he he was just so charismatic and passionate about the Abrams and tanks, and and just was this kind of winning personality that he he influenced a lot of us to to want to go armor. So I wanted combat arms. I wanted to be. One of those frontline guys. Um, I, I didn't have the my dream as a boy was to be a Green Beret, you know, be be in command of a ODAE team and you know, running and gunning and doing halo jumps and all that great stuff. Um, but after a, a couple of injuries, and I, I, I tore my knee in airborne school and I needed surgery on that, and uh then I heard it again playing rugby for Hofstra. Um, you know, it just like my knees were just not cut out for doing ruck marches and stuff. I was like, so let, let me try this tank thing out instead. And, you know, I'll just drive everywhere instead. Um, but I was also at the same time, really interested in military intelligence. You know, I, I love the analytical side of the house, you know, the, the, the piecing together information, the the, the, um, line and graph charts that you would do to kind of assemble all this info to pass along to the ground units and the line units. So I was fascinated by that. And I really couldn't decide which one I wanted to do. Uh, And that's when the colonel in charge of the program is like, well, you know, the army has this neat, nifty little program called branch detail, where essentially you get commissioned in intelligence, but then intelligence loans you out to armor for your lieutenant time, essentially. And by the time you're uh, first lieutenant promotable, moving on to captain, that's when Intel takes you back. So that's how I ended up doing both armor um, as through my first rotation uh, overseas and then switching over to Intel and being an Intel officer in the second rotation.
0: So, Tim, that's a lot like what I did. I went to Mercer University down in Georgia and I okay. came in under the branch detail program. So, I was also MI, but I was detailed to the infantry. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on the branch detail pro- program. Did you think it was good? And do you think that the detail program made you a better intel officer?
1: I, I think the so my particular circumstances, how they worked out. Um, I I can't really tell whether it made me a better officer or not uh, Intel officer, which I'll get into. uh, uh, But I do believe that the program as a whole, in theory, uh, on paper, is is kind of a brilliant approach, you know, in in that every battalion in the army needs an intelligence shop and needs an intelligence officer. And the idea that, okay, I'm going to be an armor lieutenant, so I learn how armor platoons and companies and even battalion level operations work, and I'm so well versed in that uh and then I go and become an intelligence officer, and then m i sends me back down to an armor unit, so now I know exactly the type of targeting packages or intelligence that I need to put together in order to allow. The armor line units to be successful in their operations. I think that's a, a, just kind of a brilliant approach to things and allows you to do um, a whole lot of capability with your uh, officer corps in that regard. Now, in terms of my specific circumstances, I went over for my second rotation in 2007 and the, the name of the game back then was transition. Every, it was the the surge. Everything was about transition, transition, transition. Um, So I got put on a MIT team, a a military transition team. And uh, the funny thing is that I was in Fort Huachuca taking my captain's career course in intelligence. And it was a, like a six month program and like three months and a day uh, orders came down for me to redeploy. And I, and I said, but I've got three, three more months left of this course. Like, why am I being redeployed? And um, I had been my dwell time. That was the thing back then. Uh, my, my dwell time was like 18 months at that point So that I had been back stateside since uh, 05. And it was essentially my turn to go back. And there was this nifty little regulation that if you pass like 51% of any kind of army course, they can just consider you graduated and, and move you on. So <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't know about, of course, but that, that's basically what it says. Like the day after I passed my midterm, they're like, Yeah, you're you're good to go. You 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 pass the the captain's career course, you're a military intelligence officer, and you're immediately redeploying. So uh, that was that was a bit of a shock. Um, so I essentially was only three months, you know, ninety days or so, trained as an intel officer, and now I was being sent over to advise an Iraqi lieutenant colonel on military intelligence, you know, policy and procedure and TTPs and, and stuff like that. And um, I, I found that very interesting. But again, transition was the name of the game, and to be honest, I didn't need to teach him anything about intel he, he'd been in the service for like 30 years at that point um ours was more of okay let's work through logistical challenges let's let's figure out um kind of the, the different ways we can approach your intelligence capabilities uh while safeguarding people and you know there was a lot of infiltration of of insurgency and everything, and a lot of a lot of backstabbing and betrayal and everything. So we would work more on the logistics of how to kind of safeguard his assets in the field and um, make the most out of whatever kind of electronic warfare assets that were available to them, uh, any kind of OSINT or, or um, human intelligence that we had available. Uh, that was the kind of things
0: that we worked on. So you came in on the branch detail program. So you had no intel experience while you're in armor, right. and they send you to the MI transition course and the advanced course, and you get a whopping three months of yeah. intel training. So you're probably a captain when you're back in Iraq, right? Yes. Yeah, so you're no. in t- you're an intel captain in the army with about three months of training of intel training. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and 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 I'm in
1: charge of mentoring a Iraqi intelligence officer with 30 years experience in Intel, you know, so that, that was the kind of the, the unique rub of things, even, even through the language barrier um, and working through my translator, he and I knew, you know, where the rubber met the road. He's like, okay, you're, you're not really, you know, you're, 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 (laughs) A twenty-three-year-old kid. You're not here to teach me how to do <laughs> intel work. And I was like, No, I'm not. I'm not going to pretend that I know everything. You could probably teach me everything and then some on your side. Um, but I do know some stuff, and I know, you know, and I, I have been in Iraq before. You know, I had been there oh4 through '05. Um, so there was things that I could help him with you know beyond just the intelligence application you know there, there was different things of like just how to liaison with with multinational force units and how to work with the Americans and how we might approach things from different perspectives because of the cultural differences you know between us and so I think that was beneficial in in that regard um, but getting back to kind of your original question, um, the branch detail program, when it applies to how I was utilized specifically, uh, it really didn't match up because uh, I never got to get sent back down to an armor battalion and and be the s two for for a bunch of uh, tankers. That would have been fun too, but um, you know, taken as a whole, I much preferred my Abrams to doing the Intel work. I'll, I'll say that much. Yeah.
0: <laughs> hey, fair enough. So this was 2007 ish.
1: Yeah, my second ro- rotation was uh, 0708.
0: Yeah, I remember that. So things were getting pretty sporty in Iraq 0708. At the same sure. time, people were getting out right and left because folks like you and I and numerous other folks who'd already been to Iraq once yep. or twice, been in that meat grinder, folks were getting out and they'd stopped lost. And my folks, they did that almost immediately. I was yeah. in Korea in 2001 when 9-11 happened. Okay. And we got stop-lost almost immediately because I was trying to get out of the Army. I was yeah. not having a good time. I didn't have a good time in the 101st. Didn't have a good time in 2nd Infantry Division. Yeah. trying to get out and couldn't. My wife got recalled, more or less, back in really? the force. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. She they was were so, out. So they were, they, yeah, she was doing her re- reserve thing. And they're like, hey, guess what? So- Wow, that was a that was an interesting time to be an intel officer. It was such a shortage branch; they weren't letting weren't letting folks out. And as we just heard from you, Tim, they were speeding people through the system, giving them half the training they needed to get out there in the force. Very interesting time to do intel.
1: Yeah, uh, a hundred percent. And even that, like the uh, the larger officer corps, just seemed you know kind of whatever MOS you were in, you were, you were getting stopped because between my um, my first and second deployment, my, my contract ran, ran out, you know, I, I had paid back my, my four year scholarship with the four years of active duty that I was obligated to do. And uh, same thing, I was stop lost and, and ended up doing 10 extra months and uh, a second rotation as, as a result of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, like I mentioned dwell time, you know earlier like the all volunteer force it was just a grind because they were literally tracking how many days you were spending stateside versus other individuals and if your number was higher than someone else you were going back next you know and and the turnover was was just absolutely crazy uh it was very hard to keep up with everything
0: put a lot of strain on on everyone i believe it's crazy that with 18 months you're the the high dwell time guy. Yeah, that is you in the yeah. advanced course. They need you so bad that they're going to rip you out eighteen months.
1: Yeah, I remember um, meeting with my branch advisor, and he was going through uh, everybody's um, wish list essentially for follow on assignments. And there was a whole bunch of cool ones at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, there was like two spots for counterintelligence officers. So they were like going to go to Quantico or something and do super secret squirrel stuff. And, you know, everybody wanted those. And then there was um, a couple of s- slots to actually be tasked out to the air force where they would be on Intel collection platforms that would be airborne, you know, like, like JTAC type stuff. And I believe even some like C-130 Spectre type, you know, or, or spooky gunship type stuff. So there was a big competition for those because uh, you know, everybody knows that the Air Force is live in large over there, you know. So yeah, right. Uh, Who doesn't you know, want to be with the Air Force so, for yeah, sure? Exactly. So uh so those guys were doing that. And then there I was at the bottom of the list with my dwell time, and uh basically looked at the guy and because I had I had not the greatest experience my first rotation. Uh and I and I looked at my branch manager, I said, you know anything that you can do, I know that you're hard pressed, you know, and and that you have to be the guy that sends people back, but anything that you can do, please do, because I I really just can't go back there. And I could see it right in his face. He's like, you know, he didn't say it. I didn't say it, but it was like, uh, there's nothing I can do. You're, you're, you're at the higher end of the dwell time. And you're going to have to go back. So I, I think I was kind of like hoping for a miracle in that regard that he would find some place for me. Um, what he did do, which was really fun. Um, I, I say that sarcastically. Uh, <laughs> he, he said, I'm I'm going to have to send you back the, like the second time I met with him, I'm like, okay, got it. He's like, but what do you want when you come home? And I said, well, my, my, my stop loss time will be up so I can get out. Um, but, you know, I would really love to finish where this all started. I'd love to be a captain or a captain promotable and, uh, go back down to ROTC, you know, at some university in, in the country and impart on these young cadets, the things that they really need to know before they, you know, uh, swear their own oath and and get sent over themselves, you know, because I had that, you know, frontline knowledge at that point. And he's like, okay, let's, let's do it. That's great. You know, so I was doing my second deployment with the whole time, believing that I was uh, going to get sent to be a a cadre member and be an instructor when I got back. And then that branch manager uh, PCS out of his position and a new one came in. And I hit him up while I was about like six months into my rotation. It's like, Hey, you know, I'm six months out. Just want to make sure everything is lining up and you know, that you've got the university that you want for me. And he's like, what are you talking about? You're not going to ROTC. And I was like, well, no, no, your predecessor, you know, he, he, he kind of made that guarantee that if, uh, if I had to go back, he would hook me up on my, on my return. Right. He's like, well, what's your master's degree in? And I I went, (laughs) I went, I don't, Have one, you know. I've been I've been deployed for the last two of the three years. You know, I don't have a master's degree. When when is I supposed to go to school? He's like, without a master's degree, you can't teach ROTC. Sorry, I'm revoking your orders. It was just like that. So, you know, it it was so um, just kind of fact of the matter. You know, just just like, well, let me see what I can do with you, or maybe we can find an exception, or or maybe there's a school out there that doesn't need a master's. And it was just, no, not happening, pulling the plug, you know? So at that point it was like, well, what do I do? Do I go back down to a line unit or, or do I submit my, my resignation, you know? And, and kind of similar things like, like you were saying, I hadn't had a great experience in the military. Uh, I had two deployments, uh, whereas the second one was much more of a, um, advisor role and, and less, uh, in terms of op tempo, my first one, I was actively patrolling, you know, and doing combat patrols and, you know, had a couple of close calls. So looking at the forecasts of everything, um, it didn't look like operations were going to slow down anytime soon. Uh, I was newly married after my second deployment, actually, had uh, gotten married just before I left and did my newlywed year with me in Iraq and her at home. Um, So we wanted to get on with our lives. We wanted to start a family. Um, Certainly didn't want to put a wife and, and child through me deploying every other year, you know, and, and just really thought at that point, you know, I've, I've done, what I set out to do. I achieved my goal. I served my country. I did the things that I wanted to do. Um, gone were the aspirations that one day I was going to be a four-star general, you know, like, like that, that was kind of my, <laughs> my, um, naive approach to life, you know, uh, prior to the military is like, I don't need to get a. I got a degree in history because I was like, I, I don't need a degree in any particular career field. um, the army just requires that I get a degree. Um, so I didn't take, I didn't think, oh, I I should get a business degree so that when I get out of the military, I'll be more marketable to corporate America. I was like, I'm not getting out of the military. I'm going to be in the army for 30 years. You know, they're going to take care of me. I'll be a general. And then by the time I do get out, you know, corporate America will just be fawning over me because I had four stars on my lapel. Uh, that did not work out. You know, that was <laughs> that was not the way things ended up for me. Um so so yeah, that, that turned into its own set of challenges uh coming into civilian life. But um, you know, you know, kind of like I said, I I saw where the rubber met the road in terms of what was forecast ahead of us and what I had already done and where I was in my life and uh, just made the decision that uh, enough was enough for me. And I, I was ready to move on and try other
0: things. Uh, Tim, when you were talking, I was thinking about the Army's dwell time policy. And a lot like stop loss, the Army had a job to do, and they're trying to, to make it as fair as possible. But sure. it's interesting, the unintended consequences of it. So again, I'm, I'm flabbergasted by 18 months, made you a high dwell time guy mm-hmm. in the advanced course. But when I was at West Point teaching the first time, I got a very kind message from my branch manager inviting me for a job that I was especially well qualified for in Congo okay. uh, and especially well qualified meant they couldn't get anybody else to fill it. I, it, it was an unarmed UN assignment there and i'm a six foot five white guy that doesn't speak the language and not, doesn't have a gun i and i wrote him i was like why, why don't i just kid, kidnap myself and save everybody the trouble before we go <laughs> so they were they mentioned the same thing to me they said hey you have high dwell time i was like i i get that compared to other people but i've been deployed seven times yeah so when every other mi lieutenant colonel in the army has eight deployments you tell me it's my turn until then i don't want to hear about this guy who who Finally got around to deploying in 2013 or whatever. Right. And his dwell time is better than mine. Yeah. So I am. And plus, I thought I was retiring. Ended up not retiring. Got out to Hawaii. Got another message about Congo again. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I probably am a high dwell time guy because my last employment had been 10 years ago at that point. Okay. So, yeah. So I ended up going to the Philippines for two months instead and everybody was happy. But, yeah, dwell time could get you if you're not careful.
1: Yeah, it was, it was, it was very interesting at that point because um, it seemed like, I remember third infantry had led the charge um, from, from an armor perspective, you know, third, third infantry had led the charge, you know, the good old thunder run into, into Baghdad and everything. Right. And then first Cav who I was with, we relieved them in 04 for 04 05. And then third ID was back in 05 to relieve us. Um, So by the time I came around to 2007, the army was like scooping up people from all corners of, of the, of the branch to say, no, it's your turn. And I remember being um, in Fort Riley, Kansas with a, I think a staff sergeant uh, who had been working in the army's communications, AIT school. And he'd been there forever, um, and this NCO was like, "Yeah, no, I had a great gig in the in the schoolhouse, and I've been there for like uh, you know eight nine years as an instructor and everything." But you know, they finally found me, and they sent me over here. So now I got to deploy. He ended up um, uh, having some being like medically excused uh, <laughs> and not having to go, and they sent him back to the schoolhouse. Um, cause it couldn't pass the medical to deploy. Uh, and that was a, like a really difficult thing to swallow. Cause again, we were like roommates and here I am. Um, I'm only like married for six weeks at this point. Um, and I've already gone over once and I had the close calls that I told you about. Now I'm facing this, uh, prospect of going back again And he was like breakdancing, you know, in in our, in our shared space, because he didn't have to go. And like, he got all his buddies that he had made at at Riley um, in the pre-deployment workups and they were like drinking and partying and everything. And I'm like in the next room, like, you know, writing the letter that if I don't make it home, here's what I want my family to read, you know, like tears are like dropping on my paperwork and and this guy, you know, he was never going to touch deployment at all. So I, you know, I say that I'd, I'm not trying to come across as like I was complaining or uh, bitter as to how it worked out. Um, but there were definitely those instances where you know, some people kind of got away a little more scot-free than others in the military, you know, and that's that's just how my situation worked out. But, um, you know, everything works out the way it's supposed to in the end. That's what I believe. So, um, you know, that, that that was it. That was my service.
0: Yeah, it is hard. I remember being at West Point 2013 through 18, the first time I was there, okay. and we had field grades showing up or that had been here that never deployed, Yeah, still getting promoted, still getting paid the same as everybody else. Mm-hmm. And some of them were quite happy about it. And there's yeah. there's always circumstances. Some people don't wear combat patches. They just don't. And it's right. hard to tell that they hadn't been, but you know who has and who hasn't. Sure. And I I just like, it was hard for me to understand how they could be okay with themselves Mm-hmm. In a in a organization that's designed to do what you and I did, and they weren't doing it and weren't seeking it out. Yeah. And meanwhile, we had folks that are getting sent involuntarily, marriages have falling apart, dudes are getting broken. Yeah. Yeah, it was hard. It was hard Absolutely. to deal with. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Really was. Uh you know, that that's where you see the um hell, even after nine eleven, you know, we had just an ROTC uh an exodus of cadets because right. You know, it was pe- from overnight, it was peacetime army to wartime army, you know, and every one of us had to look each other in the eye, look ourselves in the mirror. And our cadre had to be like, hey, guess what, guys? You might have signed up for this program to, you know, have some fun and wear the uniform and, you know, shoot an M16 every once in a while on the range, you know, get the scholarship to pay for, for school. But, um, guess what? You're going over, you know, right. like what we are transitioning now into a wartime military and you're going to go and fight. So really make the decision if this is worth it or not for you. And a lot of cadets were like, you know, I'm, I'm not, I didn't join the army to get my ass blown <laughs> up or shot off. He's like, I was just going to do this just to pay for college and, you know, kind of see the world and everything. And that's, you you had that divergence of people that were really dedicated and looking to serve and people who were like, wait, wait a second. That's, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, signing up for this kind of thing. And there's nothing wrong with either decision. Um, but you, you certainly saw that um, that split happen in real time, which was, which was really interesting.
0: Well, Tim, understanding that you and I both have the privilege of hindsight, what did you think about the Iraq war when you were in it? Especially on your second tour, when you kind of got to work closely with the Iraqis,
1: um, tale of two deployments, basically. Um, there, there's like, <laughs> I laugh at it now, but there's like the naivety of being a second lieutenant, right? It's, it's and and especially when you're coming from my um, upbringing that I had where my whole life, had, my whole life seemingly has been geared to this exact purpose, this exact thing. So uh, I had the flourish of um, naivety and what the army would be and and what my service would look like. Again, the, the four star general in my mind and everything like that. Um, and, when I was finally out of armor basic and I, I basically deployed almost like a month after, um, graduating from, from Fort Knox, Kentucky, um, because first cab was already over there at 04. So I got immediately sent to, to follow them. And, uh, I was just wet behind the ears, but man, I was, I was hard charger. Like I, I wanted, I wanted to, you know, prove my worth and, and show that this is what I was meant to do. And, and, I went to my company commander when I finally got assigned a platoon and I was like, all right, sir, I'm, I'm here. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to, to eat lead and spit bullets. Let, you know, show me where my tanks are. Let me take the fight to the enemy. You know, it was just very much um, engaged in, uh, you know, the, the the entire aspect of what we were doing over there, what we were was supposed to be doing over there. And, um, and uh, my, my company commander said, oh, I, "I like that, Lieutenant. I'm like, come on out back. I'll show you. I'll show you your vehicles." Notice he didn't say tanks. He said vehicles. And uh, he opened up the back door, and there was four Humvees waiting for me. Like, like, <laughs> he went, "There you go, Lieutenant. He's like, go ahead, go go take the fight to the enemy. And by the way, give, give me a vehicle inspection in about two hours. You know, so that that was a, a fun revelation that I ended up doing um, more like." logistical escorts and, and kind of uh log pack and, and uh, medevac type operations I just on the roads constantly. Cause I had a Humvee, I had, wheeled platoon versus the, the tanks. Um, but yeah, it was, it was very much my first deployment. I, the overall aspect of it was in the gaze of that Bright-eyed bushy-tailed lieutenant who is just looking to kick ass and take names, you know, and just uh, I'm a meat eater, I'm a I'm an Abrams guy, you know, whatever. I'm gonna I'm gonna win the war single-handedly. Um, and then you you know go through the deployment and you have the close calls that you have, and you hear about friends not making it home and and all those other things, and you and you see guys getting wounded, or or even if that none of that touches you, just What's happening in Iraq, you know, to the Iraqi people? Mm-hmm. Just, just how destitute they are, and and the, the the poverty that's happening to them, and the oppression that the, they were under, and the conditions that they're living in, and you get that kind of uh, appreciation for the U.S. that you never really had before, you know, because. You've never seen that. I, I used to drive just outside of our sector if I had to do a uh, drop off, and there was a, a a field of garbage that stretched as far as I could see. It was like a garbage dump, and it just went forever. And uh, one day we were driving by it, and I saw a bunch of people moving through. And I asked my interpreter, I'm "Like, what are they doing? You know, looking for scrap metal or something? You know, and everything." Like no, they're building shelters. They live in there, you know, like it was just kind of just this different world, you know. um, so then i I got home and uh you know, suffice it to say, in the run up to the second deployment, there was a lot more um, self awareness going on uh, about both myself as a person, myself as an officer. Uh, what my duty was and whatnot uh, and kind of the political atmosphere as to what's going on. it was kind of like in a way the curtain was being pulled back, you know, and, and I had more um, perception of, you know, how things had developed and how we got sent over to Iraq. So I won't go so far as say as I was like, um, um, shirking my duty or anything like that. Like I was still, um, a contract contracted commissioned officer. I was going to fulfill my obligations and everything. But when you like factor in the dwell time and getting, you know, redeployed out of the schoolhouse three months early and seeing an NCO just, you know, dancing and drinking and he's never going to have to go and, and, all of the atmosphere of you know the political fighting that was going on as to what we were doing over there and how we had ended up there in the first place and everything. So it was really much more of a um less of a aggressive armor lieutenant, you know, who's who's just looking to um, win the war single handedly as like you know in Captain America type style versus. Um, uh, a captain who's been around the block a little bit and um, can certainly advise and take care of the troops that are assigned to him, but has more of a um, self-awareness as to what's going on and uh, as to what was happening on the ground and above. And um, I will certainly say that that awareness influence my decision to, to leave the military after that.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, I was having some similar thoughts as to what you were describing as well. I, In fact, I think we have an article coming out today where my best friend and I co-authored a piece about our respective experiences in Iraq. Okay. And one of the things that I wrote about that I thought about when you were describing the Iraqis in the trash dump was one day I took a helicopter flight from Balad down to baghdad and normally in the unit i was in we didn't fly during the day so i didn't mm-hmm. really and and i was the intel guy so i didn't go out a whole lot sure but this time nap of the earth daylight doors open seats out legs out on the mm-hmm. way down and i remember seeing it first for the first time it's my third tour in iraq first time i really saw it up close in the daytime from the air It was like man we messed this country up yeah and it wasn't a values judgment that's what we were there to do mm-hmm. but this is about 2008, 2009, I guess. And it's like, man, we messed this country up bad, whatever it was like before we probably made it worse. And I was like you pretty aware of what we were doing, what we weren't doing. And that's what kind of drove my decision to leave the special operations community and, mm-hmm. and try to go do something else. Sure. Yeah. I mean, especially
1: oh seven, oh eight, 08, it was, you know, it, now all the Iraqi institutions have been um, abolished, you know, since since the 2003 um, incursion. And so, yeah, we're trying to transition them, but we'll transition them to what? They don't have any functioning right. government for the most right. part, you know, only a name only. And um, the age old... Uh, rifts between Sunni and Shia and and the Kurds and everything else, it reared its ugly head. You know, it filled the gap of that. And that's when you had that heightened sectarian killing where you just, just, especially uh, in Baghdad, you just had, you know, 30 or 40 bodies found this morning. And then the next day in another neighborhood, it was another, you know, 20 or 30 bodies from the different sect, you know, and they were just retaliating against one another. And it was, um, you know, kind of uh, the wild west at that point, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough time to be there. That's why we put the surge in, why we started putting Jersey barriers everywhere, you know, and just, just essentially lock the country down so that the, the chaos stops and we can kind of stabilize that place again.
0: Yeah, that's right. And that's where we really saw some of the bad policies that got implemented really bearing fruit, like debathification. Mm-hmm. So anyone who knew yep. how to ro- run a city yep. out of a job, disbanding the army which is kind of the only thing holding all those sects together, together yeah biggest you know, mistake yeah yeah i think i think you're absolutely right i think that was the biggest mistake we made other than to go in iraq before we'd finished our afghanistan sure though so, yeah.
1: yeah yeah we had. we had uh, i always describe it as after 9-11 and going into Afghanistan where, where the Taliban straight up told us we're not going to hand Al-Qaeda over to you. So it's like, all right, well, then we'll, go, we'll come and get them. You know, it's fine. But we had really the world behind us. You know, we had all this right. um, collateral, you know, and we could ask the world for anything after 9-11 and we would have gotten it. And I feel personally, that we wrongly spent that collateral by going into Iraq in '03. You know, like, like we should have finished the fight in Afghanistan first.
0: Oh, totally. We had we had the goodwill of the entire world and we squandered it. A-
1: absolutely. 100%. It.
0: I think people were deeply suspicious of our true motivations for going into Iraq. And then when all that D that we said was there didn't materialize, and we did find some chemical weapons in there. I remember guys getting hit with mustard gas and stuff like that, but it was kind of leftovers. Yeah. It was nothing on the scale of what we said. We just lost all credibility. Right. And then we never really got serious about winning the war. And right. then that's why we didn't.
1: Yeah. yeah it was a s- squandered opportunity.
0: For sure. So you come back home, you're getting out. Did you have a plan or was your plan just to get out of the army? Uh, it's kind of a bit of
1: both. Um, you know, the, 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 the idea was let's, let's stop getting shot at for a living. You know, that, that's, that's always a good
0: plan. Always,
1: you know, a good plan. And I don't want to um, make it out. Like I was um, at at the forefront of, uh, you know, combat running and gunning and everything. Like I had had enough skirmishes under my belt. um, Just enough to say, uh, I don't like getting shot at like, you know, just, just, you know, but I, I was certainly wasn't engaged in any, any heavy combat, but enough to say like, okay, let's, Let's stop having things blow up on the side of the road. Let's stop having people taking pot shots as as, as we drive by. Um, so that was kind of the immediate thought. Like, let's let's just get out, you know, kind of figure it out. But at the same time, um, we were kind of being spoon fed, at least prior to nine eleven, this this thought that you know, when you're a junior officer and and you make captain and you do your NTC rotation, everything, you have all of these intangibles um, that the civilian um, job market really eats up, is looking for things that can't be taught elsewhere, you know, task organization, um, multitasking, leadership skills, all these things. And they're like, we were kind of being spoon fed this from day one of ROTC. Like when you get out after your four years, you're just going to be scooped up by a corporate recruiter. Uh, You're not even going to really need a resume. They're just going to take your OER and and you're just going to be handed a $75,000 a year job with, you know, full benefits and a company car and everything. And I bought into that, you know, hook, line and sinker. Again, that naivety coming through again, I'm, a 24, 25 year old kid still. Right. Um, but yeah, so that was the plan. Uh, like, okay, I, I hooked up with the recruiters, they they're lining up interviews for me and everything. But I only had, I think, four weeks of terminal leave. So that's, you know, I, I don't know if the army still does it, but it was a bi-weekly pay period when I was in, you know. So that that's two paychecks I have left from the military. And then I got nothing. And at about the three week mark, I hadn't heard anything from these recruiters. <laughs> they were gone, they were ghosted. This is ghosting me before ghosting was a thing. And uh, and I said, oh shit, I, I need a job, you know? so luckily I had a connection to a former um, platoon leader from my first uh, rotation. He and I were platoon leaders together and he had gotten out and gotten into environmental energy production. And it was kind of a new company, but it was it was like a venture capital thing, so it was it was well established, had a lot of funding behind it, and uh, they needed project managers, and they loved hiring junior officer military. So I reached out to him, and I was like, "Mike, I I need a job." He's like, "All right, come on up to Connecticut. I'll hook you up with an interview." and uh, And the company ended up hiring me as a project manager. Uh, it was wind turbine energy. So I, um, found myself in charge of a project, uh, just to the east of Buffalo, uh, no, to the South of Buffalo, excuse me. Um, that was for the great Lake effect wind that would come off the great lakes. It was like a great place to site these turbines. So I was working up there. Um, but I was living on long Island still, which was crazy because I would, Commute the the comp like the company had stupid money, you know, this venture capital money. So they didn't have any qualms about flying me from Long Island to Buffalo every week and putting me up in a hotel the entire work week. Like I did that for six months. Um, but then I went to company leadership. I said, you know, I I got out of the army to see more of my family, not, not less. I'm like, oh, well, yeah, no, we understand that. How about we move you? And your wife up to Buffalo and be, you know, there, we'll pay for the move and everything. And I went, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. So we discussed it. We pulled the trigger. We moved up there, um, signed a lease, had a great place. And then six days later, the housing market bubble burst and the recession hit in like September of 08. And uh, all that venture capital money that had been invested into the firm Suddenly got recalled and oh, wow. back, and uh, we called it like Black Thursday or Black Tuesday because about ninety five percent of us got laid off. Uh, so there I was, and I was one of the newer uh, guys, uh, you know, right. last in, first out, you know, type deal. So I had the least amount of time in the company. So I was there was no way they were going to keep me on, and uh, yeah, I, I got laid off six days after moving to Buffalo. So we we had to Ouch. come back with our tail between our legs a little bit. And and that really started, um, that, that time, that extreme stress of going through that and being jobless and, you know, just the whole reintegration to civilian life. And the, the army was everything that I had worked for my entire life, uh, and, and everything I thought I was going to be in my professional career. And even while you're in, whether, you know, it doesn't meet expectations, as to what you thought it might be, you still know what your job is. You still know what your future is going to be. Like, you know, I signed this contract. I'm here for the next four years, you know, so however right. it works out, whatever. Now I'm on the civilian side. I've got a, uh, a, a wife that I'm responsible for. She's pregnant with our first. Um, I have no job. I'm hundreds and hundreds of miles from our support network, uh, what the hell am I going to do now? And that really started both uh, the reintegration issues and the uh, my my post-traumatic stress disorder issues um, began. That was like the the spark that lit the fuse, you know, and I I would go through the struggles of all of that over, you know, probably the next 10, well, even more than that, more than a decade worth of issues. And only up until recently in the last year or two of you know, kind of wrestling that under control, you know, it was so it's been a long journey in that regard. Um, So that's what happened with the job. And I ended up like working security, because that's the only real work that an Iraq veteran could find who had a history degree and, you know, didn't know how to fill out a spreadsheet. So so I ended (laughs) up here, here I am standing at the door again, you know, protecting uh, dignitaries and whatnot. So that's how I kind of ended up in that realm. So how did you get into writing? Writing, I was, um, always passionate about always, um, had a knack for wouldn't necessarily call it a talent. Um, just, just more of something that flowed easily for me. Uh, I had this very, very vivid imagination as a kid. I used to, I used to make up these stories and play these games with my action figures that would just like span weeks at a time. Uh, And I think it kind of developed from there because as things happen, like if I had to stop and go to school, I would like hit the pause button on the story in my head and then like pick it up either after school or the next day or whatever so I was like essentially building chapter breaks into these stories as I was going along oh this is a good place to leave off here you know after and uh as I got older and and you know you're 18 years old. So playing with GI Joe's is kind of frowned upon at that point, you know, especially if you ever want to get a girlfriend. Um, so, uh, it, it just kind of naturally transitioned, you know, plus you just don't have the time to sit there playing with action figures anymore. So now my imagination got into writing and it was just a hobby. Honestly, it was just something that I enjoyed to do, uh, writing when I'm writing, it's, uh, escaping from reality in many ways, uh it's also empowering because I am creating my own realities uh in, in that regard. And that's everything from contemporary writing, like like The Instructor, which we'll get into, um, that takes place in the here and now, or you know, fantasy writing where or science fiction writing, where I'm literally making up entire worlds and entire, you know, uh um species and whatnot. You know, so uh it, it moved along. I did it as a hobby, but then kind of around like 2014, uh, I started writing some short stories and posting them on my social media. And I started getting really good feedback, you know, from, from people. And I, I took that with a grain of salt because these, like, you know, I'm posting them on Facebook. So it's like, you know, my mom saying, Oh, this is so great. You know, it's like, <laughs> of course, my mom. If, it, yeah. if it's, if it's, if it's dog crap, you're going to say it's still great. Even that, but, but other people from, and from the extended network said you know, hey, you got you've got something here. You got you got a little bit of skill. So I started pursuing it um, as really my next goal in life. You know, I had I had three dreams and three goals. You know, that they, they they doubled as as each. And the first was to become an army officer. I accomplished that one. Uh, served my country. Accomplished that one. Uh, the next, I I wanted to be a father more than anything. Wanted to raise children in the same way that my parents did such a phenomenal job raising my brothers and I, you know, so I wanted to pass that along and have that opportunity to become a father and do that. Uh, and then my third, which seemed like outlandish, I would, I would say it was more on the dream side versus the goal side uh, was to become a published author, you know, a traditionally published author where I could walk into a Barnes and Noble and see my book on the shelf. And uh, I never thought it would happen because I always just thought it was one, incredibly difficult to do, but two, it's like, ah, I'm not, I'm not that good enough. I do this stuff to toy around sure. and, and and just, you know, kind of make up, you know, things in my mind uh, just to get away from reality for a while. But as I started getting that feedback and I started um, writing more and more, uh, like I said, about 2014, 2015, People were really saying, no, you've got, you've got some talent here. You should you should give it a go. And uh, and that's what I did. I, I started, you know, taking more and more of my work and putting it online. And then I, I started writing full-length novels and and going through the submission process to try and land an agent. And every step of the way, I learned a little more, I gained a little more, I, re- I, I refined my my skill set a little more. And uh, you know when the manuscript for the instructor was finished, uh, I finally, um, I, I had gone through about, she's I think three or four manuscripts before that. Um, only one of which I thought was good enough to put out there into the world and it failed spectacularly, but I had learned so much from that process of submitting it that by the time I had the manuscript for the instructor. I knew that not only did I have a refined product uh, to to submit to these literary agents, but I knew the exact process of how to go about doing so that would give me the highest likelihood of success. And even with all that knowledge, uh, I still got signed by the slimmest of margins, you know, by my agent. Uh, Just, it really is a, a nexus of your skill, your your dedication and discipline to to putting the work out there, uh, and kind of the luck of the draw, you know, because the the publishing market might be like, uh, oh, we're not looking for books like that right now, you know, right. or 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 your agent might say, Hey, I really love your writing, but um it's too similar to other people I already have signed. You know, I, I heard that a bunch of times, you know. So it, it just everything has to kind of fall into this perfect storm of, uh, opportunity, which I was fortunate enough to, to get and, and land an agent and, and subsequently have, uh, the book picked up for, uh, for publication.
0: Well, I'm fascinated about how an army officer chooses a Marine warrant officer as a protagonist for a story. I, th- I think that's definitely unique. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and about the plot for the book, your book, The Instructor? Yeah, 100%. So um, real
1: quick for the, for the plot, uh, it's essentially a retired Marine warrant officer who is uh, a former SEER school instructor as well. Um, Basically is a wilderness survival expert, um, both from his time prior to the Marine Corps and during. uh, And he is now retired uh, and trying to uh, basically run his own bushcraft wilderness survival school. Um, but he's floundering, you know, he, he, his reintegration issues have come out. His PTSD has come out. He's getting hit from all angles by civilian life and, uh, he's, he's hard up for, for money. He gets approached by one of his students after teaching a class who, uh, offers him a large sum to, uh, teach $20,000, uh, to teach a private group in upstate New York for, for 30 days. Uh, and even though he has reservations about doing so, he needs that that payout. So he reluctantly takes the job. Uh, and while he is instructing his th- this private group, he starts to discern that they're not what they say they are. You know, they have they have nefarious intentions. Uh, and he 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 learns along the way that the training he's providing them is, Uh, going to be utilized to um, conduct domestic terrorist operations. Uh, So now he sets out to, to stop that from happening. Essentially. Uh, The reason why I picked uh, a Marine Corps warrant officer uh, is because the original idea for the instructor uh, came from a work colleague and I talking. Um, He is a retired Marine Corps warrant officer, which I didn't, I was like kind of unaware that the Marine Corps even had warrants, you know? So, um, but he was a Marine Corps warrant officer. He was a a counterintelligence and a human intelligence qualified warrant. Um, he would also serve with force recon. So he had like the, um, the blueprint of what Derek would become to be at least from like a career standpoint from, from here's the schools that you go to, here's the deployments that you do uh, and whatnot. And I was fascinated by how the Marine Corps uses these warrant officers in these very highly specialized um, intelligence teams that they were on. Um, And that colleague is also well-versed in wilderness survival. so um he was at, at a certain point he was he was giving uh, telling me this tale about how he almost got picked up by hollywood to um be the next like bear grills or 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 less stroud of survivor man uh, and he kept coming up against this brick wall where the producers didn't want to use him because he wouldn't divulge the secrets of his top secret clearance. You know, he, he wouldn't go into his backstory. And I kind of jokingly said, you know, if you need a backstory, I'll just write you one, you know, I'll, I'll I'll just, (laughs) I'll just make up a backstory and, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. When it comes out, you can take it to Hollywood and say, you know, I'm not saying this is me, but kind of based on a true story, it, it very well may be kind of thing. And if it gets you the job, then great. You know and he, and he was like, you know, just kind of, yeah, whatever, Tim, no problem. But he, he said, go ahead run with it. He's like, use my, my, uh, career as, as the backdrop, you know, see, let's see what you can come up with kind of thing. And, uh, that's where the idea came from. And then I just started putting the pieces together and I started incorporating, um, you know, his military career as the backdrop, um, my own passion for storytelling, my own experiences with reintegration and, and post-traumatic stress, uh, and kind of rounding it all out was the attributes of my own father, you know, and, and just his, dedication to family and self-sacrifice and all these other things. And that's how those kind of like three pieces came together to form what would be Derek and and this story that moved forward. I started typing it with the intention of it was just going to be another short story. And then I was a man possessed. I mean, if I flew past like 30,000 words in no time and I was just writing day in and day out, you know, if I was on the train coming out of New York city, I was clacking away for that hour that I had the free time on the train, you know, uh, everybody would be uh, sleeping and I'd be sitting with my laptop in bed, just still clacking away and just going. I was a man possessed. Uh, I wrote the whole first draft in uh, 90 days, 90,000 words in 90 days. Um, and from there, you know, the rest is history. Went went through the whole submission <laughs> process and and here we are about six weeks from publication.
0: So. Is this the first in a series or do you plan to write more books? It is.
1: I was, um, I was actually just working on the sequel, uh, right before we jumped on, on together. Uh, I was signed to a two book deal, um, to start, uh, the series, but yes, it's, it's meant to be, um, in the vein of a, a gray man or, or a, um, um, Don Bentley or, or, uh, Nick Petrie's, you know, Peter Ash and, uh, those, those type characters, Jack Carr's, you know, James Reese uh, type characters where the the books are ongoing. Um, So knock on wood, you know, provided this first book does well and the second book follows suit, you know, I'm hoping that there'll be a future for, you know, another series of books after that, that follow on as it is right now, the storyline that I have playing out with Derek I have slated to be at least three, probably four books. So I'm hoping at the very least that I'll get a deal for, you know, the the final two books in the series that'll finish out this storyline. But this sub genre of military thriller, there's always an audience for it, you know, and, and they just, they love their heroes. They love their former special operation guys. Um, and, they, you know, people are just, thirsty to see what hijinks these characters are going to get into next, (laughs) you know? So I'll, I'll, as long as uh, people still want to read it, I'll keep trying to come up with ideas and and crank out as many books as I can.
0: Well, Tim, how can people get a copy of your book,
1: The Instructor? So uh, it comes out April 11th. Uh, Right now it's available for pre-order. Uh, Anywhere that you would buy a book, uh, it's available on Amazon, uh, on Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, uh, even Target. You can go to Target's website and get it. Uh, So you can pre-order it there. It's available as um, hardcover, ebook, and will also be available as audiobook as well. Um, So you can go to any of those sites and do it. Uh, You can find me at uh, my website tr dot uh i'm on twitter as tr underscore hendrix and i'm on instagram and yes i know on tiktok uh as read tr hendrix uh, that last one TikTok, tick tiktok whatever it is <laughs> i got kind of uh, pulled into that one by my daughters. You know, they're like no dad you need to be on that <laughs> you know and I was like, okay fine i don't do the silly dances or lip syncing or anything but uh believe it or not, the publishing world kind of like fixated on TikTok a little bit. And, and so you need to be on there. So I, I kind of lucked out in that regard that my my daughters guided me in that direction because it's been beneficial towards the the marketing for the book. But yeah.
0: <laughs> well, Tim, we, we're about at an hour right now. I thought that I might turn it over to you for any final thoughts or projects or ideas that you have, especially thoughts about the future for you as a Two tour combat vet, and any other advice you have for vets, like uh, publishing yeah. or anything else?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, um, just in the general sense, uh, it never, never give up, you know, never stop working on your goals, even when you achieve a goal and it ends up not being what you thought it was going to be, you know, like gather yourself up, hit the reset button and work towards something new, you know, don't get lost in the mix. Uh, and certainly, uh, if you're having difficulty reintegrating into civilian life, if you're having difficulty wrestling with post-traumatic stress disorder, don't go at it alone. You know, there's, there's plenty of us that have navigated the minefield ahead of you, uh, reach out to somebody, anybody. Uh, I, I'm, I say this on, on every, uh, casts that I do, I'm, I guarantee that 90% of veterans out there, even if they're strangers will pick up the phone and listen to your story if need be, you know, and get you the help that you need. Cause there is that connection. There is, there is that, um, shared experience that we all have. So, mm-hmm. you know, don't, don't do what I did and, and, you know, spend years of your life uh, making the mistakes and, and going down the road that um, costs you, you know, other things in life that you're looking for, you know, reach out, get the help early. It, it, it's okay to talk about it. It's it's okay to um, explore these things and, you know, find that happiness, find that success in your life, you know, whatever it may be. If you end up finding a passion for, I don't know, you know, equestrian, you know, saddle making or, or blowing glass, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, if it makes you happy and it finds a way to rededicate that purpose in your life then run with it and, and, and give it everything that you've got and, and don't stop. And that's, that's basically the best message that I can put forward out there.
0: I think that's a great message for all vets, Tim. And I appreciate you being on the show today. Looking forward to having a hard copy version of the instructor in my hands. And best wishes for the rest of your books.
1: Absolutely, thank you so much for the invitation, the opportunity. It's been great talking to you, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to do it again when when the sequel comes out. For sure,
0: Tim. Look forward to having you back on the show. Awesome. Thanks so much. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes another episode of the Battlefields Podcast. Many thanks to today's guest, Tim Hendricks, to our sponsors, The Epoch Times and The Havoc Journal, and our editor, Michael Neal. And most of all, thanks to you, our listeners. God bless. And until next time, good hunting on your own battlefields.